Dr. Neil Bernard. Dr. Neil Bernard. We're very, very excited about hearing from Dr. Neil Bernard. Dr. Neil Bernard. He is the founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Let's welcome Dr. Neil Bernard. Neil Bernard, thank you so much for this interview. My pleasure. Thank you for including me. Since you started, um, veganism's popularity has kind of exploded. What's it been like for you as somebody who's been propelling this movement forward for many decades? It's really true. When we got started, there were not so many people following vegetarian or vegan diets, and things have just exploded. Uh, it used to be a health food store. It was a tiny little place playing folk music. Cashier was named Sunshine. And now, if you look at health food stores, they are enormous. They're selling so many products, and people are buying them. There's tremendous interest in it. There are so many books and websites and products, and it's, it's wonderful to see. But perhaps the most important thing, I think, is that the scientific basis for this has also matured. We now know very, very clearly that a plant based diet really does help weight loss, cholesterol gets better, blood pressure gets better, diabetes gets better, all of these, these things. And we have a, a very good um, uh, base of scientific evidence now that we didn't have maybe a few decades ago. But a few decades ago, we had uh, a lot of um, scientific data. Do you not think it's the way the, science, the data is assimilated that's more of a problem rather than us needing more and more data? You know. We've, always, we've known for quite a long time that a plant-based diet was better for you. And one could certainly have argued that based on what we knew in the 1950s, people should have already been changing their diet at that point. I think that's really true. But at the same time, what we have been able to do is to really show that, let's say a person has developed diabetes and they start this diet, what's likely to happen to them? Are, are, will, will their blood sugar really fall? And will they really lose weight? And how quickly? And, and, and we've been able to nail those things down really quite well. What is especially gratifying is the consistency of evidence. It's not as if some study shows that you gain weight and some study shows that you lose weight. They are remarkably consistent. You put people on a low-fat vegan diet, they lose weight, and it doesn't matter if you do it with healthy young people, really overweight older people, you do it at work, you do it at home, you do it in the hospital, whatever. This huge range of studies has been hugely consistent, and that gives people tremendous confidence. And that's why the U.S. government now holds that a vegetarian diet is one of the healthiest ways to go. You're suing the U.S. government though, aren't you? We have had to fight with the government quite a lot. Um, back in the year 2000, we were looking at the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, which, which makes the recommendations as to what every American should eat, but it also has ripples for the rest of the world. And we found that there were 11 people on a committee, of whom six were industry-funded, especially the dairy industry, but also eggs and meat. And so we filed a lawsuit against the USDA at that time. Simply to say, hey, you're nice people, but you cannot be letting industry dictate what people eat. And we won that lawsuit quite quickly. And things haven't been perfect since then, but, but we're getting better. And so industry is fighting very hard to influence these guidelines. But the government is getting better at rebuffing them, I have to say. Can you just give us a sense of what it's like to be up against these kind of um, industries and... Uh, the animal agricultural industries worth more than oil. There's been wars over oil. What's it like? Have you had a lot of backlash? When we, uh, when we fight against industry, 
they are bigger than, than we are. They are bigger than, than all the health organizations and all the scientists all put together. But that doesn't mean you don't get into this. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, years ago, the dairy industry said, if you try to lose weight, including dairy in your diet, will help you lose more weight than if you just had a low-calorie diet without the dairy. We looked at the data, and the data were quite suspect. And we filed a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission. The dairy industry said, wait a minute. You don't tell us what kind of advertisements we can run. And they fought tooth and nail. But you may not be the most well-moneyed group. But if you're right, that helps. And we won. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission, it took them two years to decide. But they pulled the plug on these ads. Um, the, the egg industry went on a very expensive campaign to say cholesterol doesn't matter. The eggs are the biggest source of cholesterol. And they said, oh, no, no, you know the cholesterol you want, it won't affect you. And they worked really, really, really hard. There was quite a lot of, I hate to use the word corruption, but um, money has played a pretty bad role in this. The egg industry gives money to scientists to do studies, and they end up sort of buying their loyalty. It's the definition of corruption. Um, however, um, the U.S. government, when it was uh, formulating the dietary guidelines, the advisory committee said, let's go along with that. Cholesterol is not really such a big deal. And we showed that on the committee there were four people that had economic ties to the egg industry, and they were in charge of this policy. We filed suit. And as this was percolating, the government itself said, wait, cholesterol is a problem. I don't care if it's egg funding or, or who, has, who it's funding. Cholesterol is a problem. You eat cholesterol from eggs, your blood cholesterol rises. And the way it came down was the government said you should eat as little cholesterol as possible. How do you do that? Plant-based diet is as little cholesterol as possible. Plant-based diet has no cholesterol. So you're talking about getting the messaging out there and kind of getting rid of the misinformation. But even if people did know about the benefits of plant-based nutrition, the everyday person, if everyone knew, do you think people were ready to make that change, even if, if they knew? We've got the data. Are people ready for that information? Everybody is different. There are 12-year-old kids sitting at the dinner table thinking, I like chickens, the ones we have at school. Why am I eating this chicken now? And one of the reasons that their parents say you have to is because they had thought it was dangerous to be a vegetarian, and so they would say, no, you have to eat meat. Well, now the parents have a great deal of comfort realizing that the kid who says, hey, mom, I am not going to eat this meat anymore, that is a future cardiologist. That's the smartest person right. at the table. So that has been a big change. Um, and there are adults who say, I'm kind of hooked on this stuff, whether it's cheese or meat or whatever, but they get motivated when they're having trouble losing weight or the doctor's adding more and more pills or they're having more and more side effects. And they will want to change as well. And, and for them, it's very heartening to know that, that diet changes really will, will help them. So we've seen an elimination of the negatives and a great accentuation of the positives, the, the benefits that come from a, a plant-based diet. I believe veganism's kind of boom in popularity can largely be attributed to increased grassroots participation. You're heading up an organization that's lobbies, lobbies on a sort of governmental level. What do you think is going to drive this movement forward more, grassroots activism or the kind of stuff you do? We have to work at more than one level at the same time. If we are not working on policy, 
then you've got your one, one arm tied behind your back. For example, a, a, a kid might want to have vegetarian meals at school. Well, if the U.S. government says you can't, we've got to stop that. But I agree that forces, the, the, the forces that really kind of win the day come from culture. Um, are you seeing this on TV or not? Are you seeing the products at the store or not? Are friends talking about it? So that's why we favor books and websites and all the things that take what we know from science and get them in front of people. And that's why we love movie makers, people who get films out, uh, people who put it in their songs uh, on their CDs, all this kind of thing. You put all that together between reassuring policies, doctors who say, this isn't bad for you to change your diet, it's good for you to change your diet, um, and just as much noise as we can make, that's the way you win. So you're saying the increased popularity of veganism in plant-based nutrition, the knowledge of plant-based nutrition has largely come in the last few years because of the democratization of information, the age of the internet, that's facilitated this change? I think all of these things have been working together in a very good way, including uh, health professionals like dietitians who are trained in what I might call sort of fairly conservative uh, approaches to nutrition. Even what was called the American Dietetic Association, now called the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, they said decades ago a plant-based diet has health advantages. It's a good thing to do. And that has encouraged lots and lots and lots of folks. Uh, when we got started, there were not very many doctors singing that song. But man, has that changed. Uh, so we're seeing changes at every level, and that's a good thing. Let's talk about the barriers. We've kind of talked a little bit about them. What are the main barriers holding this movement back? Part of it is industry. Barrier-wise, uh, industry is very eager to sell their products and very eager to create a pretense that Cows are happy to give you milk and they're enjoying a bucolic existence as opposed to the truth, which is if you wanted to see them getting artificially inseminated and having their calves taken away at birth and, and ultimately being slaughtered, it's not so pretty. Um, industry pushes hard. Industry also has found ways to extract money um, that it can use then for advertising and promotion and the U.S. government subsidizes the feed grains that the cows and the chickens and the pigs eat, and that keeps the prices low. But industry is not our biggest barrier. The biggest barrier is our culture. It's ourselves. Um, your average person eats what they grew up eating and what was familiar to them, and that's the biggest thing. And so the, the, the way to deal with that is to create a new culture, um, which, which, of course, is happening. There are so many kids now who know the word, I mean, nobody says vegan anymore. They've, they've heard the word vegan, and they've seen these uh, products, and they know what they are, and they're getting familiar with them, and they like them, and, and they've heard about the environment, and people stop debating whether environmental change is real. It's obviously real. Um, things You've are been changing. quite vocal talking about the environment. I've seen you a couple of years ago with Gene Bauer on a stage talking about the ethical issues of veganism. Right. Do you think that makes your mission as a medical doctor harder, that you're so open about the ethical and environmental um, issues? No, I don't think so. I, I, think, I think it's a, a really important to tell the truth for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that if I'm talking to a 16-year-old kid, I can talk to them about prostate cancer until I'm blue in the face. They do not care. But if that's an animal-oriented person or an environmentalist, let them know. Their, their coronary arteries don't care why they change their diet. Work with the motivations that matter to, you, to your patients. That's, that's number one. Um, the other thing is that in, in the world of tobacco, at first when 
the tobacco industry was coming under scientific scrutiny for its contribution to lung cancer and other conditions. Um, researchers could be quite even-handed, and they would do their studies saying, I don't know, let's see what we find. We find. By about the 1960s, it was really clear. We still needed research on tobacco and on health issues, but researchers no longer pretended that there was something ethical about marketing tobacco products. They were clear about that even while they did their research. That's the, the world that I am in. Now, I have to be clear that, that the industry that I grew up with in North Dakota is not so kind to the environment of the animals. And you, to not acknowledge that is just silly. But when I do research studies, I do them carefully in a double-blind fashion, or not, it, a blinded fashion so that whoever is assessing the results doesn't know who's in which group. And it, it has to be done objectively. It has, it has to be done in a good peer-reviewed way. And we have to be careful about it so that it's real. Um, but, but the facts are the facts. The dietary guidelines, should they, uh, include inf should they be influenced and affected by environmental and ethical issues? When the dietary guidelines were uh, revised this last go-around, the committee said, we have to look at the environment. Because not only do food choices affect the environment, which, which in turn will affect health in a lot of ways, flooding and accidents and all kinds of problems, plus it, the environment is affecting, the environmental changes are affecting how you produce food. That was the first thing. The other thing is they, I think, made a cogent argument. They said, if you don't consider the environment, but let's say you're telling people eat wild-caught fish, and there's no wild-caught fish anymore to have. Um, they said, we have to talk about the environment because otherwise it's ludicrous to try to make, make uh, diet guidelines without that. Well, they were defeated. The U.S. government, the, the Secretary of Agriculture said, Do not, his words, we're not going to color outside the lines. And they took all the environmental stuff out, unfortunately. Wow. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I, I, think, unfortunately I, think, yeah. I think they should consider these things, yes. Definitely. Let's talk about another barrier, low-carb doctors. Do you see them as a threat to the movement? For many, many years, there have been doctors who have said, if you're overweight, take out all the carbohydrate, or most of the carbohydrate from your diet for a while, and since that's half of what you're eating, you're going to lose weight. I mean, you take out all the potatoes and all the bread and all the fruit and all the beans and all the pasta, you'll lose weight. Like a hyena taking away meat, it will probably lose weight. You will lose weight. Um, however, after a period of time, you say, this is like starvation. Uh, can I bring these foods back? And the weight comes back, but, but worse. In that interim, if you're not eating all of those healthy foods, what are you eating? You're eating meat. You're eating heavy cream. And weight loss normally causes cholesterol levels to fall, but on these fatty, high-cholesterol diets, sometimes people's cholesterols, despite the fact that they were losing weight kind of from semi-starvation, their cholesterols went up, sometimes way, way up. And when Dr. Atkins himself, um, poor man, I mean, he died of an unfortunate accident, but then there was a big controversy, which I was in the middle of, where he had heart disease that he hid from people. Because um, he had his agenda to push his diet. My feeling was that people should know that this is not a benign diet and it's not a natural diet. People are natural herbivores, just like every other great ape. Like it or not, we are not dogs and cats. We are great apes. And the foods that are natural to us are those that we can pick with our hands. So. The low-carb doctors, do you think, this is a controversial question, you don't have to go there, but I'm going to ask it, why not? 
Do you think um, they recommend meat-based diets because of a lack of integrity, or is it just because they're misinformed? I've often wondered why it is that some people are so wedded to the idea of low-carb. Um, and they'll say you should really have a steak. And, and it forces them into all kinds of rationalizations, like cholesterol doesn't matter, I guess saturated fat doesn't matter, and the links with heart disease and Alzheimer's disease, let's try to discount them. It puts them in a tough spot. And I'm really not quite sure where that motivation comes from. Depends, I guess, on an individual level, and I don't want to get, in, in, obviously, into anything personal. Um, well, let me say one thing. Um, about a month ago, I was invited to give a talk in New York, in New York, at the, the Weill Cornell Medical Center. And the talk that I gave was hosted by the Atkins Foundation, with money that had been, been left by Robert Atkins himself. And I took that to mean things are changing. Are there any other barriers that we haven't talked about that are holding this movement back? Uh, one big barrier is addiction. And I'm going to put that word in quotes. Um, but what I mean by that is, is uh, not are you back in an alley shooting up cheese. What I mean is, do you just feel hooked on something and are you paying a price for it? So if a person says, I don't think I could give up cheese, and despite the fact it's 70% fat and very high in calories and your weight is going up and up and up and you've got diet-related diseases and a person says, I, I can't give it up, it's time to start using an addiction model for it. You don't have to say that they're physically addicted, although people have, including me, have made a very good case for why it, there are physical things happening in the body and in the brain that do seem to get people hooked. But if you use a model based on addiction treatment, what do you do? You say, first of all, don't fool around with that stuff. An alcoholic has got to just not drink. If you are 75 pounds overweight from eating cheese and meat, you just set it aside and use social supports, um, look at good alternatives, put all of the things that we know defeat addictions to work to deal with your food habits, and you'll get some payoff. Do you think doctors don't recommend veganism because they themselves eat meat? I say veganism, I meant plant-based diets. There are a lot of doctors who don't yet promote vegan diets or encourage them, and I think it's because of a lack of familiarity. They didn't grow up with it and they never tried it. Um, and I hate to say it, they're a little bit like the doctor who is sitting with a smoker. And the smoker can see through the doctor's white coat pocket the outline of cigarettes. Um, that doctor has no credibility. And years ago, other doctors started writing doctor in journals, to be a credible health advocate, you must be a non-smoker. And doctors have quit smoking and, and just, you know, to, to a great degree. A doctor who's not a vegan... Um, not only isn't very familiar with it and less likely to recommend it, but is likely to maintain myths like it must be hard to do. I can tell you it's not hard to do a vegan diet. It's, it's much harder to count calories with an old-fashioned calorie-counting diabetes diet and try to lose weight by cut, you know, you know, doing a traditional kind of diet. A vegan diet means you can eat as much as you want, of, uh, within reason, obviously, of healthy food. Very simple. I love the comparison you use between um, the tobacco industry and what we've got at the moment trying to push the plant-based movement forward. A little bit different, though. With tobacco, it is a binary thing. Tobacco smoking was bad. Um, not avoiding tobacco smoking was good. With meat, it's a little bit different because a lot of people think processed meat is really bad, but then they think unprocessed meat is good. So it's going to be a little bit harder than the smoking 
thing that happened 50 years ago. Where do you see the trajectory of this movement going? How long do you think it will take for people to, to really start giving up animal products? People have already started giving up animal products. And when we started the Physicians Committee in 1985, there were very few doctors talking about this. Today, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands, of, there are lots of them all over the place. And we have an annual conference. Um, the one in 2016 had 750 doctors, medical students, dietitians come. And there is a huge movement in this direction. So the old days of doctors being skeptical and whatever, virtually all doctors know this is a good idea. Many of them are trying it. The rest know that they should. At the time, do you have any idea about the timeline of that? Uh, we don't all eat the same meal at the same time. So some people have gone vegan already. Others are going that way today and tomorrow in the short time period. Others will take a while. And there are people who have an economic interest in never following a healthful diet and those people will never change. But more and more people are going this direction. I think one of the things that's fueling it is not only the doctors like me who, are, who have been talking about this for a long time, but athletes. We are seeing so many football players, the top male and female tennis players now, I'm talking about Novak Djokovic and Serena Williams, both said, sign me up, take the animal products yeah, off their yeah. plate. Uh, Novak Djokovic just uh, set up a vegan restaurant in Monaco. It's the most chic place you know you can imagine. And so people read about this. It's and trendy. It's becoming trendy, but trendy for people who, for whom performance matters. And we have um, top politicians who are doing this. Um, and, and by the way, it's, it's not just people who are endurance athletes, like tennis players and sprinters and long distance runners. But football players, I'm, I'm talking about American football, these people who need to be muscular and, and fast at the same time. And we're, we're seeing more and more people doing this. What message do you have for the Food for Life team in the UK who uh, have a mission to open a Bernard Centre and get their the Food for Life program clinically commissioned by the National Health Service? The Food for Life program is a way to get practical tools into people's hands information that they can use, and an understanding of how you put it to work. That's a wonderful, wonderful gift for so many people. And I'm really delighted that there are folks uh, in the UK who are going to be doing this and bringing it forward. I think it is fantastic. And for doctors, advocates, teachers who want to see this movement go forward, the Food for Life people are your best right arm. In 2016, you got animal testing ended at every medical school in the US. What big achievement do you expect in 2017 or, or in, in the future? Yeah, well, for you? 2016 has been a good year. Um, every medical school in the U.S. and Canada stopped using animals for education leading up to the MD degree or the DO, Doctor of, Doctor of Osteopathy degree. Um, the uh, U.S. Congress passed a new animal testing law it said animals can only be used for industrial chemicals as a last resort after you use all the alternatives first. That was a huge step forward that we, we've been, we were working for 10 years on that. Um, there have been many, many other changes too. So th there are always uh, things that have been, been terrific. In 2017, we were tackling other animal uses in laboratories, uh, some educational areas at higher levels like trauma training. That's where so, so a few places still use animals. 
Um, and of course the biggie is getting animals off the plate because when you do that, the animals are happier, the earth breathes easier, and your coronary arteries are going to be a whole lot better off too. Coming to the end now, what do you think the biggest threat to the movement is? The biggest threat to the movement? Um, I think it's important not to let things interfere with what we're going to do. A plant-based diet is a great thing on every level. There is no disadvantage to it. And I don't think we need to worry too much about the fact there's some resistance. Because if a person says to you, I'm not ready to go there. I don't want to do that. I, don't, I, don't want to, I, 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 I couldn't afford it. My, uh, my family would be against it. Uh, I'm not sure where I get my protein. That's not no. That's a person just telling you all the problems that you need to solve for them. And those problems are getting solved. So I don't really see any um, insurmountable threats. I think that industry is strong. So what? They're losing ground anyway. Um, to this, and they're diversifying. So we've got the dairy industries buying soy milk companies so that if soy milk is popular, they'll sell that. So um, yes, people are addicted to all these things to a degree, but we're breaking through these addictions with healthier products, great tastes, big stores with very cool stuff to buy, and it's very much a winning trajectory. Last question, your role model to so, so many people. Who are your role models? There are so many people that I have looked to and, and have inspired me. Uh, I'll mention just a couple. Um, Dean Ornish, I think, is a medical genius. When he was a medical student, he started looking at what diet could do for, for heart patients. This disease that kills more people worldwide than anything else, um, he started tackling with a plant-based diet and other healthy lifestyles. Uh, Colin Campbell, Caldwell Esselstyn, John McDougall, a very humble uh, person, but John has brought people into his center in California and completely just changed their, their outlook. Um, and there are lots of doctors working in their medical centers like Rob Ostfeld and many others who are bringing this diet forward in such a great way. Um, Rip Esselstyn, who's Caldwell Esselstyn's son and has said, he's like the most macho person in the world, <laughs> but he says, you know, you too can do this diet. And uh, Rip is a wonderful person. So I could go on and on and on and on. But um, there have been so many people who not only have motivated me, but, but they're also really cool people. And so you can talk with them and get their advice. And uh, um, I might add one more. Kim Williams is the immediate past president of the American College of Cardiology and adopted a plant-based diet for his own health, but then started thinking, wait a minute, I'm a cardiologist. Let's get this word out wi widely. And so uh, he's been super effective at doing that as well. So uh, I see victory. You've certainly motivated me. So I just want to say keep up the good work. Keep propelling the movement forward. Um, I love your propensity and tenacity to get the message out. And you work so, so hard. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. There's a lot left to do, but we're doing it together. Let's get some lunch. <laughs> All right, let's do that. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you.